This is a Socialist News and Views special report. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this holiday special report coming to you as 2023 is ending. Our top 10 most played podcasts this year are nearly all special interviews and one regular episode. Our top played is our special interview, Nurses Forward Part 1, followed by our interview with Edwin Fruit for Ward 1 City Council, and then Crisis in Nigeria, Let the Poor Breathe, Free Palestine, General Strike U.S., Part 2 of the Nurses Forward interview, and then Episode 42, which was How to Start a Revolution, followed by our special interview, Reform and Revolution's Response to DSA and Crisis, then our interview for On the Left Bank, zine and finally snv special interview we were lied to about 9 11 those are the top 10 podcasts for the year today we're going to be hearing a dessert recipe and then talking to a friend a bit about the basic ideas of islam and then i'll be reading an essay by malcolm x called zionist logic and we'll finish with a song Now, when I was doing a little bit of research into Islam for the interview we've got coming up, I came across Leilat al-Ragaib, which is, according to Inside Out and Istanbul blog, one of the Kandil Knights or Candle Knights, and one of the, quote, five holy knights in the Islamic world, end quote. It says Ragaib is known as the Knight of Wishes. Not all Muslims observe these nights, but a number of sources say this night will occur on or around the middle of January 2024. Wikipedia says it will occur January 14th. Wikipedia also says, quote, Kandil refers to five Islamic holy nights celebrated in Ottoman and Muslim Balkan communities related to the life of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. When the minarets are illuminated and special prayers are made, it is a tradition dated back to the Ottoman Sultan Selim II of the 16th century, end quote. Wikipedia says the five nights represent the birth of Muhammad, the night prayers are answered, and Muhammad's conception, Muhammad's ascent to heaven, forgiveness of sins, and determination of destiny for the next year, and first revelation of the Quran. It also says on Wikipedia for popular customs of Leilat al-Ragaib that, quote, in Turkey, this and other Kandil nights were traditionally marked by cooking lokma and baking a small round loaf. So I found a simple recipe for lokma on the nomadic cook that says, quote, if you go to the Middle Eastern countries, you will find this tasty dish almost everywhere. It has different names, but all stem from the Arabic word lokma, which means morsel or bite. End quote. Here it is. It requires only five ingredients with the simple recipe listed. For the dough, store-bought bread dough, vegetable cooking oil. For the syrup, two and a third cups sugar, one and a half cups water, and one tablespoon freshly squeezed lemon juice. For making the syrup, it says, about 30 minutes before you start cooking the dough, prepare the syrup. Mix the sugar and water and add to a saucepan. Gently heat it up for about 10 to 15 minutes until sugar is a syrup consistency. Add the lemon juice and cook for another five minutes or so. Leave it to cool down. Cooking the dough. It says lightly flour a flat surface like your kitchen table. 
then roll out the bread dough with a bread roller to about six millimeter thickness. Make sure to turn the dough around twice. Use a circular bottle cap or something similar with a diameter of about four centimeters or 1.5 inches to cut the dough into circles and place it on a lightly floured tray. Cover the dough with a plastic sheet and leave it in a warm place for about 15 minutes or so until it has risen to about double its original size. While the dough is rising, add about three inches, eight centimeters of vegetable oil to your wok and heat up to 185 degrees Celsius, 365 degrees Fahrenheit. Make sure there are no kids running around that can knock over the hot oil. Safety first, it says. Gently add the first lokma ball into the hot oil. Now continuously pour hot oil over the dough with a slotted spoon until it's until it rises and puffs up. Do this for a few minutes until it keeps its shape. Then you can leave it for about one to two minutes until nicely browned. Remove the lokma balls with a slotted spoon and place them on a plate with absorbent paper. After a minute, transfer them to another plate and drizzle the lokma balls with the syrup and enjoy. Again, it recommends using a wok to heat the oil and to cook the lokma balls. Now, before we go to the interview, I wanted to mention dates as another simple food associated with Islam. No baking or cooking required. Though my wife put dates in the fruit cakes she baked for me for the holidays this year. My guest for the interview wanted me to mention dates because they are natural, healthy, and three dates are often eaten to break the fast after Ramadan. Now here's our interview on some basic elements of Islam. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. Do you want to just introduce yourself, tell listeners who you are? Sure. Uh, my name my name is Abdurrahman uh, Hassan. Uh, I am a resident here in Minneapolis. Um, I uh, grew up in the Twin Cities area. I've lived here most of my life, actually. I came here when I was about 12. Um, and I've been here since uh, since then. And now, and now I am 31. Um, and uh, in terms of profession, I work as a registered nurse. I, I do wear several hats in that role, uh, but um, uh, but I work primarily in mental health uh, and currently um, primarily in the mental health of uh, pediatric patients uh, or children. Um, yeah, I, I love uh, the work I do and, and I'm friends with the host of this uh, podcast that, and I went to school with him. So, yeah, oh, that's a little bit about me. We did go to school together. Yeah, I, I kind of forget that you work in pediatrics now uh, yeah. because you're working with a lot of, uh, I, I never really got into pediatrics myself, but um, yeah, yeah I, so you're doing that work now. That's that's good. Um, yeah, we've known each other for some time now. I haven't even counted uh, how long, but what, school was like- Seven years at least. At least, yeah. Time flies, uh, especially when there's a pandemic in there somewhere. Um so, you know, I wanted to just start out with uh, giving, this, <laughs> giving this disclaimer that I said I would give that uh, you are, sure. we're going to uh, talk about Islam today. You are a practicing Muslim, but you are not, uh, you don't claim to be any kind of, uh, you know, official expert on uh, Islam. So I will give that disclaimer. But, you know, today we Thank wanted you. to just, just talk a little bit about uh, Islam specifically. Um, and the first thing that I wanted to just touch on was the you know, importance of charity and hospitality uh, specifically uh, that I have been, uh, you know, able to directly observe in Islamic culture. Um, can you talk a little bit about those two elements and their importance to the faith? 
Sure. Yeah, I am. I am a devout Muslim, uh, and particularly Sunni Islam. Uh, my parents are also Sunni Muslim. I grew up in a Sunni Muslim household, um, and um, in 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 Islam, um, there is a lot uh, about charity um, and and uh, giving back to the less fortunate, the poor. Um, in fact, you know, in Islam, uh, there are there are many, many rules uh, and regulations. Uh, it, it, however, um, there are some important critical ones. They're all important, but there are some that are critical. Uh, in Islam, there is something called the five pillars of Islam, uh, which are the things that uh, all Muslims need to meet. Uh, you know, and those five pillars are. Um, uh, the declaration of the Shahada, right? That that there is uh, only one God, and that God is Allah, and Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam is his uh, messenger. Um, that's the Shahada. Muhammad uh, Rasulullah. The second pillar is Salat, that you pray, um, and we pray five times a day. Um, and then Wa'atu Zakat. The third pillar is that you pay Zakat. Um, and zakah is money that you, not just money, uh, it's uh, value uh, that you give to people, uh, whether it's property or money, uh, to people that are less fortunate, people that are poor. Um, and we do that at the end of Ramadan. Uh, and Ramadan is the month of fasting, uh, where you fast from uh, sunrise to sunset. Um, and at the end of uh, the 30 days of Ramadan, which is based on the lunar calendar, we observe uh, the holiday Eid, uh, Eid al-Fitri. Uh, and before the Eid al-Fitri prayer, you um, uh, pay the zakah. Um, and that zakah um, is mandatory, it's obligatory. It is the, you know, one of the five pillars of Islam, and it's the third thing that's mentioned right after the prayer. Uh, and it's 2.5% of your uh, income, uh, not just income, but like your whole value, like your assets, property, uh, money, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's the amount that you give uh, to people. Uh, and this is actually the amount that is left over after um, you've accounted for your bare minimum, you know, your cost of living, et cetera, your rent, your food, and so on. Anything above that, that's what is kind of, uh, in some ways, like taxed at 2.5%. Um, so in, in Islam, it is, uh, you know, a foundational aspect to be charitable uh, to the less fortunate. Um, so that one is obligatory uh, for all Muslims. Um, and there is also uh, sadaqa. Um, and sadaqa is a different type of uh, charity. This is the one that you do voluntarily out of your own volition. Uh, however, it is seen as um, it is seen as something that gets you closer to God. It is something that uh, is praiseworthy from uh, uh, in regards to the hereafter or the afterlife. Um, and sadaqah uh, can be uh, charitable contributions that you provide to the less fortunate. Uh, 
but it is it can be a lot of different things. Sadaqa could be um, you know removing um, you know something from the road that could possibly cause an accident, a hazardous thing. It's things that you do out of compassion for other people to make other people's lives easier. Uh, and yes, it could be giving you know ten dollars or twenty dollars, whatever, to somebody who's in need. Uh, but it, it also could be you know helping somebody who's blind kind of navigate hazards um, you know on the sidewalk. Uh, it could be um, you know carrying grocery bags with uh, for an elderly individual that's struggling with that. Um, so zakat, um, uh, zakat and uh, sadaqa are both uh, very important things uh, in Islam. They're mentioned in our holy book, uh, the Quran. Uh, and there are um, um, other teachings that also talk about it within Islam. You mentioned three of them. Do you want to just, uh, I don't know, did you mention the other two pillars of Islam? Oh, yes. So it uh, uh, sounds like it, this is a quiz show, man. I, well, I figured you already <laughs> mentioned three, so there's five. Yes. Might as well. We don't well, want to leave everybody curious at the end. I mean, they they, they should be curious, but we don't want to... A cliffhanger is important. They need they should do research and read more about it. Uh, yeah, so in Islam, uh, the five pillars are uh, the declaration of the shahada, right? which is the observation of prayer. It's important that you pray. zakat That you pay zakat, um, you know, annually after, right after Ramadan. Wasomur uh, Ramadan. Uh, meaning the observation of Ramadan, uh, that you fast during Ramadan, the 30 days. And um, and then, وَالْحَجُّ الْبَيْتَ مِنَ السَّذَاعَةِ وَالْحَجُّ الْبَيْتَ مِنَ السَّذَاعَةِ فِي سَبِيلَ I believe. Uh, hopefully I'm not mispronouncing that because that would be bad. <laughs> uh, so that is that you go and do a pilgrimage to Mecca uh, if you have the means to be able to do that. Um and so um, that's fair enough. That's fair. I you know I don't need to quiz yeah. you anymore. That, that, <laughs> I just wanted to know what they were. That's all, just so that no, we no, can... no, it's it's very important. And in fact, you know, it's actually good that we went over that because uh, Ramadan, in 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 some ways, is related to uh, being charitable as well. You mm. know, like you know, we all fast for the sake of Allah, for the sake of God. Uh, but when we fast. You know, we are remembering uh, and experiencing the plight of other people uh, who do not have um, enough food, who are experiencing, um, who are experiencing food insecurity, for instance. Um, and it's really important to be able to tap into that, you know, and having all Muslims kind of uh, observe Ramadan and uh, fast. It gives us this like collective experience of of knowing what it is to not have something, right? Right. Uh, I mean, of course, we eat right after, but the idea of of experiencing that is uh, it, it's very humbling. I mean, depending on the amount of daylight at the time, it's a significant it's a significant um, you know undertaking. I guess I would say. Yeah, yeah, and and it is it is a significant undertaking. Um, in in Minnesota, it is uh, 
you know, sometimes 14 hours, uh, maybe even longer, 16 hours, possibly. Um, I grew up right next to the equator, uh, right near uh, Kenya is where I grew mm. up. And the equator does go through portions of, Ke- uh, of Kenya. And so uh, it's almost a perfect ratio of like sunlight uh, and uh, and nighttime. So daylight and nighttime. Mm. Uh, and so predictably, you could always predict this is the time that the sun is going to set. And so it was much simpler, you know, there. Uh, and the whole, like, at, at least in my neighborhood, the whole community really observed uh, Ramadan. Uh, but here uh, in America, it's different. You get like commercials about Domino's and Pizza Hut. Uh, and, and then and then your coworkers who are like, hey, man, there's free food in the kitchen or the dining area or something. Yeah. Uh, so it can be a little bit uh, more difficult in, a, in America in some ways. But also Ramadan is a spiritual thing, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, you know, you're uh, forsaking like things like food and water uh, for the sake of God and for the sake of your belief. Uh, and that is um, pretty, gives you uh, discipline. And honestly, I'm always shocked during Ramadan how I can go, you know, such a long time without really eating or drinking and I'm productive. Uh, and then when it's not Ramadan, I'm like, damn, man, I haven't had breakfast or. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, it's true. And, and yeah, I'm getting hangry throughout the day or something. Uh, and uh, Ramadan, it's uh, it, it is uh, it's something that's good for spirit, at least in my experience and very humbling. Well, and that brings us to uh, to the next thing I was I was uh, reading a post from somebody. It was uh, probably a couple of weeks ago now, but they were talking about how they learn about Christianity and Judaism extensively, extensively in school, but very little about Islam. And uh, I was thinking back like, okay, my own schooling, I do remember learning about Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa a little bit, I guess, you know, it was like the eighties into the nineties. I don't know if, uh, if, 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 if that's as big of a thing that people talk about as much, but, um, but everything pretty much that I learned about Islam, I think I learned in college or, you know, as on my own as an adult, um, so specifically, you know, to those holidays, is there a comparable time or holiday to, um, to that, like Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa and Islam? And then, you know, if, if so, why do you think that Americans don't learn about, uh, about it in school or even either way, why do you think Americans don't learn as much about Islam in school? And then if not, what is the most holy day, uh, for Muslims? I know you mentioned Ramadan. Um, I don't know if, uh, uh, if that would be it, but anyway, if you want to give thoughts on that. Yeah, uh, there are a few uh, recognized uh, kind of days in in Islam. Um, maybe you'd classify it as a holiday. Um, Ramadan, uh, it's it's a month long uh, and it's 30 days, it, uh, usually 30, but 29, 30 days, it depends on the lunar calendar, um, where you observe um uh, Ramadan and you fast from sunrise uh, to sunset. Uh, during those times, you know, um, right after sunset, you're, you're eating a meal and usually people uh, really make a uh, good amount of food and it's kind of in some ways, um, I don't, I don't want to necessarily say festive because it's more of a religious observation, mm-hmm. uh, but it is uh, your meal is different than your regular Tuesday meal or Wednesday meal, etc. Uh, and oftentimes it is like a, 
uh, meal that you would have with your family because it does take some time to prepare all of the Ramadan food. Honestly, I don't have sambuses as often as I do in Ramadan, but you know, that is like, at least in my culture, each community, like an Indian Muslim community may have something else. An Arabian Muslim community may have a different thing. Uh, but dates is something that we all have in common because that's what the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi uh, peace be upon him, um, uh, ate. So, um, you know, all the different types of fancy foods that people have or food that they spend a lot of time making, um, it, it is uh, in some ways similar to what other people may have during a holiday uh, because they're eating all types of family recipes, etc. And it is a kind of a communal thing. Like you eat together as a family after sunset, after Maghrib prayer. Uh, if you go to the mosque, um, usually uh, right after, uh, right during uh, the Adhan or the call to prayer uh, for uh, for Maghrib, which is the sunset time, sunset prayer, um, the mosque even has food. In the mosque usually doesn't have uh, food for its congregation, mm. right? Or the people that are there. Sure. Uh, but during that time, there's like sambusas and different uh, and dates that are passed to every worshiper. Um, and local um, local restaurants and and people from the neighborhood feel like it's a very a generous thing to do to provide food to all the people at the mosque. So there's people that bring food to the mosques during those days, uh, during the 30 days of Ramadan, so people can eat. So you can imagine the whole mosque of people eating food together, right at uh, right at sunset. Um, so in, in some ways, that may seem um, kind of festive because we are all together and we're all kind of sharing a meal. But again, I have a harder time using that word festive just because it's more of a... Uh, religious observation thing right right so as far as as far as calling it festive or a holiday or whatever it might not be like that but uh certainly significant significant, uh because you know as like you said the observance of it as part of the five uh pillars so clearly a significant um part of the faith exactly exactly that's that's how i I would describe it so there's ramadan and then right after ramadan there's uh, eid al-fitri uh, and then a little bit after that is uh, Eagle Adha. Um, and um, so those are, uh, we pray together uh, as a community. Uh, and more than just like going to your regular mosque, it's like the bigger community. So here in Minnesota, we rent out bigger venues. I remember one time we did the prayer over at the U.S. Bank Stadium. Uh, probably, I think, more than 15,000 people showed up. Um, and then we sometimes do it at the convention center, which is another big venue here in Minneapolis. Um, and then local parks as well when the weather is better. Um, and so right after the morning prayer, uh, people do spend time with, uh, with their family. Uh, and all of America knows to expect Somali families uh, on Eid because there's a whole lot of kids. There's a whole lot of, uh, there's like big lines for rides, et cetera. Uh, so I, I have a harder time taking my family to Mall of America on Eid just because I know it's going to be packed. Um, so there's the Eid uh, holidays that people celebrate. Um, and right after prayer, that's when people eat together as a family. And also on Eid, they 
uh, dress uh, in their best um, in their best clothing. And usually, people buy clothing uh, the last days of Ramadan um, so that they have something to celebrate with and eat. Um, and um, people also get their henna done, like ladies get their henna done or mm-hmm. uh, and their hair done, etc. So there's also long queues for things like that uh, during uh, the end of Ramadan. Um, so yes, definitely in Islam there are um, uh, there are um, celebrations, uh, and there's there's even a, a celebration related uh, to the Prophet's um, uh, time. Uh, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and that one is—it's um, the birthday of Nabi Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and uh, Mawlid is what it's called, uh, and it's more of a controversial holiday. Not all Muslims celebrate it; mm-hmm. uh, some do and some don't. Um, you know, and uh, I'm not really an expert on it. Um, you know, I would talk to somebody who would know more. Uh, but there's just like different opinion. There's some people that believe that, uh, you know, only God like should be celebrated, you know, um, right. like that. Um, and, and, um, and celebrating, uh, the prophet like that may be, uh, uh, you know, will change, you know, how, uh, we view Islam because Islam is a very egalitarian faith, right? right. Like nobody is like, you know, better than other people, etc. Um, and that's uh, a view that some people have. Uh, and then others, uh, you know, celebrate the prophet's uh, um, birthday. Yeah. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. And, and kind of getting into what, um, you know, what celebrated and what's focused on and what uh, isn't. I was also watching, and, and I don't know if this... Um, how this plays out, but I was watching a TikTok. It was actually something that my wife had sent me um, about Nate. I think, I think it was something she sent me uh, about nature in the Quran. Um, specifically, they discussed a little bit about honeybees and democracy. Um, and that uh, the way that, that she was talking, like the different parts of the Quran um, could kind of be related to different parts of nature. Is that something that you're, you know, like, what's your thought on that? Are you familiar with uh, that? Is that something that's common knowledge in Islam, or is that kind of a different reading of it than some people might have? Or what's your thought? Um, you know, honestly, I am not an expert on it. Um, but this was my I most know, expert question. So this this is the. <laughs> if I had known, if I had known in advance, I would have done more research. Uh, I, I maybe I don't know if you told me about it. I don't know if you sent me the question. Maybe I overrided. I, I did, uh, but I, you know, I was also thinking, you know, I didn't I, know who all would be on this call necessarily, and I just, sure, sure. I just wanted your own like opinion. I mean, if it's not something that you know comes to you immediately, then it's probably not something that's you know. I, I, you know, I know Islamic rulers uh, or over the centuries did take care of uh, nature. Uh, especially ones that ruled uh, the Iberian Peninsula, um, and and in Islam, it is um, it's it, it's important to take care of things in your environment and your community as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that includes uh, you know animals. Uh, 
you know, and in Islam, uh, you know, there's a story of uh, uh, of uh, individual that provides water to a dog, you know, and uh, and they're granted uh, heaven uh, because of that act of kindness to animals. Um, and, and in Islam, um, uh, I'm sure that the same extends to uh, nature as well and taking care of uh, that which Allah has made for all of us. Um, so, I, and in Islam, uh, I don't know if, because um, the word nature is a very secular term, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's something that exists outside of humans, outside of God. It's just the way things naturally are. Right. Uh, but in Islam, it's more like, you know, everything is created by God. Right, and everything mm -hmm. falls under the same same domain. Whether it's the tree, whether it's the animal, whether it's the person, um, and, and we we are taught respect for everything. But again, I'm way out of my depth in regards <laughs> to that to to the particulars of that. Um, and and I hope to learn more about my faith as well. Um, and but what I'm I'm uh, what I'm explaining is more of just like my average uh, understanding and experiences. Right. Uh, but there are, there are people that are definitely experts in this area that we I should know more. I should find that TikTok and send it to you because it was kind of interesting. And it was, again, it was something I hadn't really seen or heard that much of before. So I was curious to see if it was something that, you know, like I said, was, was like a common element of the faith or if this person was kind of, uh, you know, finding things in there <laughs> that that maybe not everybody necessarily uh, brought out of the text by you know, yeah, seeing it. Well, right. I think that particular TikTok is referring to like you know a passage uh, in the Quran uh, that does talk about bees. Uh, mm -hmm. But again, I'm not, you know I'm not an expert on it. Um, yeah, yeah, she kind of related yeah. it to democracy and. And how the bees make decisions. I think it was something that's not like it's not like um you know majority decision. It's like all the bees have to be like on the same page, uh, kind of thing. And then they make the um the decision that's best for the group or something like something like that kind of a thing. Um, I guess it was kind of like an egalitarian type uh, uh thing. I guess she mentioned there was two things about bees because one of the chapters uh, or one of the sections or something has something like a title that has to do with bees. And then there's another passage specifically. And I think in another section, maybe that specifically talks about honeybees. Um, and I think she did also mention a ruler that, uh, that took care of bees or something like that as well. So there's, I think, I think you're kind of getting at some of the um, stuff, but uh, the last, uh, you know, one of the, the, um, I, you know, go, go uh, to comment on that, it is a uh, it is a surah or a chapter of the Quran uh, that is titled the Bee, um, and it is um, I, the Quran kind of explains uh, the way the bees kind of operate. Hmm. And I think what the, I, I may have seen that TikTok, and <laughs> I think um, what um, she argues. Uh, is that you know the way it's explained in the Quran is in fact the way the bees sort of uh, the bees do operate scientifically speaking. Hmm. So in in a ways it kind of provides credence to what is uh, depicted uh, in, in in the Quran. Uh, yeah, but not 
but yeah, I'm not a theologian. I'm not no. uh, the best at it. Yeah. Very fair. And, you know, and theologians would possibly have multiple different opinions on it anyway. So again, that's the thing about experts. A, a lot of experts can still even have different opinions on, on things. Oh, so sure. they just have a lot of time that they've spent looking at it. Um, well, the last thing was just about, um, uh, you know, in past episodes that I put out, um, you know, kind of around the new year, uh, in, uh, uh, in the U S anyway here, um, I think this is going to be out on the 20 something at the December, you know, I've, I've covered, um, the importance of, uh, supporting the people and working people and sometimes included, um, religious elements of that specifically I had a piece written by Eugene Debs, um, kind of famous socialist talking about the teachings of Jesus. Um, you know, and I was just wondering, and I know you said not talking about not elevating certain people, um, you know, but just wondering if there are any people that come to mind as far as um, their commitment, I guess, to supporting the, uh, the people and, um, uh, you know, historically uh, that have been um, coming from the Islamic tradition. I know we had talked briefly about uh, Malcolm X uh, when you were at my uh, house before as somebody who um, uh, I think we were talking about your your cousin and, 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 and them talking about Malcolm X, um, you know, are there other, um, are there any other examples of, of, um, uh, you know, people that are, are, uh, again, coming from the Islamic tradition that are really about, uh, that egalitarian or that, um, you know, uh, 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 supporting the movements or the work of the people kind of a thing that, 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 that come into your head. Uh, contemporary ones or just history? I mean you know the further you go back the less likely I will have been to uh, be familiar with them probably so I mean I'm I'm curious anything you got uh, you know one of the the first uh, uh, leader of the Islamic world after Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Abu Bakr al-Sadiq uh, many mosques are named after him including one of the mosques uh, in here here in Minneapolis um, he was the first uh, uh, leader of the Islamic Caliphate, um, and he was a very humble man. Um, uh, and in fact, his name Al, Al Sadiq means, you know, the righteous or the truth teller. Uh, and one thing he exemplified during his rule uh, was, uh, you know, being humble and uh, and being tethered. Uh, to the experiences of uh, of the people around him, of the average folks of the community, um, you know, he didn't um, wore, wear the fanciest of clothing. He did not boast about his wealth, um, and he he didn't. He was uh, humble in his uh, in his attire uh, and in his um, and in his um, kind of presentation in general mm -hmm. um, and and in Islam that is uh, seen as uh, as an important thing you know to be to be humble uh, even if you do have a lot of uh, a lot of money or property etc um, and in fact um, you know people say that it's um, the things that are rewarded often are the things that are the most kind of like humble um, 
for instance, if if you were to have a wedding, right, mm. and um, you have this amazing wedding where uh, people wear, you know, clothing that are like thousands of dollars, uh, and there's just fancy food and etc. Uh, compared to a simpler wedding where you only have few family members and friends, um, and you have your nikah, you know, first. Um, and uh, which is the kind of like the the weddings, the engagement ceremony, or the religious uh, wedding ceremony. Um, it's that type of the humbler one is seen to be the one that is more blessed and more likely to succeed than the than the overly extravagant one, you know. Right. Uh, and so. Um, uh, it's uh, being humble um, and uh, not um, dis- not displaying overly your uh, how rich you are, how high you are compared to your peers, etc. It's not something that is encouraged uh, in Islam. Uh, and Al Bakr, who was uh, uh, the the first Khalifa uh, or the first Caliphate. Um, uh, the first caliph or the first caliphate of Islam, he uh, exemplified that by not, you know, showcasing it. C- compared to people of his contemporaries at that time, uh, like, you know, a Roman uh, emperor or Roman uh, right. you know, consul uh, or a Persian king, etc., they may have worn like silk and have the fanciest mansion, etc., where, where he did not uh, display such things. Uh, and so, that is um, seen even uh, an important thing in modern days, uh, like you know the chefs that uh, lead um, um, uh, kind of um, local mosques and Islamic centers, etc. Uh, oftentimes, you know, they would be wearing similar clothing as the average people, um, as average people in their community. You know, right. we don't have. You know, in Islam, there isn't, uh, at least in my experiences, from what I know, there isn't like a prosperity gospel, right? Right. Uh, right. The idea of like, oh, the more prosperous and wealthy you are, the closer you are to God. Um, in fact, it's kind of like the opposite, right? Like right. the more humble you are, the more religious you are, and uh, that you practice the tenets of, of the faith. Uh, the more likely you are to be uh, granted uh, handsomely in the hereafter. Uh, well, yeah, and I think that's a good place to leave it. I mean, the you know, the humble. I think is a good uh, is a good word. I think we need uh, more people being humble. Um, I think I think it's uh, you know in the in the realm of faith. I think it makes sense, and I think you know, uh, I'd like to see more political people that had uh, some humility and were able to be humble and. That kind of thing, but uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be the case for the most part, at least in American politics. I don't know. Maybe other places it is, but um, well, yeah. I mean, I it's know. complicated, even in the Islamic world. If you see political leaders, you know, uh, you know, they they will some likely have mansions and, right. and, and the fanciest cars, etc. Um, and that is not, you know, what Islam encourages. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and uh, we'll leave it at that. And now I'm going to read Zionist Logic by Malcolm X. 
In April 1964, Malcolm X made a Hajj, a pilgrimage to the city of Mecca, Saudi Arabia. And in September 17th of that same year, this essay was published. Zionist Logic by Malcolm X. The Zionist armies that now occupy Palestine claim their ancient Jewish prophets predicted that in the last days of this world, their own God would raise them up a Messiah who would lead them to their promised land and they would set up their own divine government in this newly gained land. This divine government would enable them to rule all other nations with a rod of iron. If the Israeli Zionists believe their present occupation of Arab Palestine is the fulfillment of predictions made by their Jewish prophets, then they also religiously believe that Israel must fulfill its divine mission to rule all other nations with a rod of irons, which only means a different form of iron-like rule, more firmly entrenched even than that of the former European colonial powers. The Israeli Zionists religiously believe their Jewish God has chosen them to replace the outdated European colonialism with a new form of colonialism, so well disguised that it will enable them to deceive the African masses into submitting willingly to their divine authority and guidance, without the African masses being aware that they are still colonized. Camouflage The Israeli Zionists are convinced they have successfully camouflaged their new kind of colonialism. Their colonialism appears to be more benevolent, more philanthropic, a system with which they rule simply by getting their potential victims to accept their friendly offer of economic aid and other tempting gifts that they dangle in front of the newly independent African nations whose economies are experiencing great difficulties. During the 19th century, when the masses here in Africa were largely illiterate, it was easy for European imperialists to rule them with force and fear. But in this present era of enlightenment, the African masses are awakening, and it is impossible to hold them in check now with the antiquated methods of the 19th century. The imperialists, therefore, have been compelled to devise new methods. Since they can no longer force or frighten the masses into submission, they must devise modern methods that will enable them to maneuver the African masses into willing submission. The modern 20th century weapon of neo-imperialism is dollarism. The Zionists have mastered the science of dollarism, the ability to come posing as a friend and benefactor, bearing gifts and all other forms of economic aid and offers of technical assistance. Thus, the power and influence of Zionist Israel in many of the newly independent African nations has fast become even more unshakable than that of the 18th century European colonialists. And this new kind of Zionist colonialism differs only in form and method, but never in motive or objective. At the close of the 19th century, when European imperialists wisely foresaw that the awakening masses of Africa would not submit to their old method of ruling through force and fears, these ever-scheming imperialists had to create a new weapon and to find a new base for that weapon. Dollarism. The number one weapon of 20th century imperialism is Zionist dollarism, and one of the main bases for this weapon is Zionist Israel. The ever-scheming European imperialists wisely placed Israel where she could geographically divide the Arab world, infiltrate and sow the seed of dissension among African leaders, and also divide the Africans against the Asians. 
Zionist Israel's occupation of Arab Palestine has forced the Arab world to waste billions of precious dollars on armaments, making it impossible for these newly independent Arab nations to concentrate on strengthening the economies of their countries and elevate the living standards of their people. And the continued low standard of living in the Arab world has been skillfully used by the Zionist propagandists to make it appear to Africans that Arab leaders are not intellectually or technically qualified to lift the living standard of their people, thus indirectly inducing Africans to turn away from the Arabs and towards the Israelis for teachers and technical assistance. They cripple the bird's wing and then condemn it for not flying as fast as they. The imperialists always make themselves look good, but it is only because they are competing against economically crippled, newly independent countries whose economies are actually crippled by the Zionist capitalist conspiracy. They can't stand against fair competition, thus they dread Gamal Abdu Nasser's call for African-Arab unity under socialism. Messiah? If the religious claim of the Zionists is true that they were to be led to the promised land by their Messiah, and Israel's present occupation of Arab Palestine is the fulfillment of that prophecy, where is their Messiah, whom their prophets said would get the credit for leading them there? It was United Nations mediator Ralph Bunch who negotiated the Zionists into possession of occupied Palestine. Is Ralph Bunch the Messiah of Zionism? If Ralph Bunch is not their Messiah, and their Messiah has not yet come, then what are they doing in Palestine ahead of their Messiah? Did the Zionists have the legal or moral right to invade Arab Palestine, uproot its Arab citizens from their homes, and seize all Arab property for themselves just based on the religious claim that their forefathers lived there thousands of years ago? Only a thousand years ago, the Moors lived in Spain. Would this give the Moors of today the legal and moral right to invade the Iberian Peninsula, drive out its Spanish citizens, and then set up a new Moroccan nation, where Spain used to be, as the European Zionists have done to our Arab brothers and sisters in Palestine? In short, the Zionist argument to justify Israel's present occupation of Arab Palestine has no intelligent or legal basis in history, not even in their own religion. Where is their Messiah? The Egyptian Gazette, September 17th. 1964. And now we end with a song called Leva Palestina Okrosianismen, Long Live Palestine Crush Zionism from the Palestinian Swedish band Kofia from the album Palestina Midland or Palestine My Country, which came out in 1976, 12 years after Malcolm X's essay and 11 years after his death. In addition to the chorus Long Live Palestine Crush Zionism, the song says, and we have cultivated the soil, and we have reaped the wheat, and we have picked the lemons, and obsessed with olives, and the whole world knows about our soil, and we have thrown stones at soldiers and policemen, and we have fired rockets against our enemies, and the whole world knows our struggle, and we will free our land from imperialism, and we will build our country to socialism, and the whole world will witness. Here's the song. Live Palestina, grossa Sionismen. Live, live, live Palestina. Live, live, live Palestina. Live Palestina, grossa Sionismen. Live Palestina, grossa Sionismen. Och vi har rullat jorden. Och 
Polícer. O viar foi de traqueter. O viar foi de traqueter. And that is our special. Thanks for listening. Don't stop talking about Palestine. Happy New Year and solidarity in 2024. This has been a Socialist News and Views special report.